the gospel in life. It's a um, pretty intense passage that we have this morning. I, I heard someone say that um, it was their favorite passage to me last week. Um, and we see in this letter to the Ephesian church, because it, it, it's so important to us as the church today, because Paul is, is mapping out this beautiful picture of God's plan made known to us through this gospel, through this glorious gospel. And then in chapters 4 through the end of the book, we're going we're gonna to see his, his plan of the gospel impacting every area of our life. And Paul says that, that this gospel leads to the church, the people of God, the household of God built upon Christ as the cornerstone becomes the dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. And so I want to see where we are in this passage. If, if you take the first three chapters about the gospel, about God's plan of salvation, the plan for his church, and you take the, the last chapters about our life and how we apply the gospel into our life, this section, these 14 through 21, is the in-between, or it is the, the key to living out the gospel in our life. It is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's power at work. And before we get started, I want to ask you a couple of questions to get your mind going about what God wants to speak to you through his word this morning. And here's the questions. Do you, do you live as one who has the power of God working in and through you, in and through your life daily? Do, do you live as one who the, the Spirit of God is working and you see his power in and through your life? Do you walk as one who knows and understands deeply the depths of love that Christ has for you? Number three, is God doing more than you could ask or imagine for his glory through your life? Is God doing more than you could even ask or imagine through your life? Sometimes um, it comes down to trusting the promises of God. I mean, um, when you, when you re read some of these scriptures, sometimes it grabs your attention and you go, oh, oh my, I, I don't know that, that I can trust that. I'm, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm fearful. John 14, 12 says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. This is Jesus speaking. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Greater works than Christ himself. You believe that? Amen. We got one person that believes it. Amen. Acts 1.8, another powerful passage, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The power of God as witnesses for Christ. You believe that? 
Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Do you believe that God wants to reveal himself to you? You see, the Christian life should be exciting. It should be thrilling. It is power when we are able to be used by God. Let us not miss the key to living out the gospel in our life, to be filled with all the fullness of God, as Paul writes here. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. We can open up our Bibles there as we read um, together, and um, we stand in honor of reading God's word as custom here at this church, in honor of the word of God as the authority of Christ in our life. Ephesians 3.14 says this. It's on page 977 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you want to turn there quickly. Ephesians 3.14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What a prayer. What a prayer. Amen. Let us have a seat. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we know that this prayer that you have written, Father, in here that you have inspired Paul to write to the Ephesian church. May it give us encouragement this morning that the power at work within us is doing more than we can ask or imagine. And Father, may we, our, your people, your church, have faith in the promises of God that you are working, that you are moving, that you are changing, that you are shaping. And Father, if it's by your grace, let us be used for your purposes, for your glory, for your might, for your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't, uh, I don't, Claim to know a whole lot about cars. I'm not, a, I'm not a car person. There are some people in this room that are, that are real car people, meaning they, they know engines, they collect cars, they have a, a, a lot of, of knowledge about cars. But I, I did a little research on the power of cars. And the most powerful car in the world is called, at least according to my research, is called a Lotus Evija. Okay, so you may have never heard of that, but it's owned by a British company, Lotus. It is a street-legal car, which means that you could own it, and you could drive it. It kind of looks like a spaceship, but it has a ton of 
power. It has nearly 2,000 horsepower in its engine, okay? That's some power. That may, may, not, may mean not a lot to you who are not uh, car, car people, but James Watt, who invented the steam engine, figured out a mathematical way to equate horses to engine power. So a big horse can pull the weight of 150 pounds, walking at 2.5 miles an hour. So that would be one horsepower. So one horsepower would be like one horse carrying this kind of load. Now, an average car is about 120 horsepower. An SUV having bigger horsepower has about 200 horsepower. So imagine this car, the Lotus car, 2,000 horsepower. 2,000 horses pulling at the same time. Yeah, it doesn't impress a lot of you, but some of you it does. It's okay. 12,000 pounds per foot of instant torque. I'm not going to explain that, okay? So translating, it goes from zero to 62 miles an hour in less than three seconds, okay? You can understand that. It's powerful. The asking price on this vehicle is $2.2 million, okay? So just pretend for a minute with me that you have some extra cash laying around and you have this kind of power in your garage. You have this car in your garage. You own it. It's yours. And then you get up in the morning and you think to yourself, you know what? My 2000 Prius with 58 horsepower is just fine for me. I'm taking that to work this morning. I'm pretty satisfied with that. See, the problem is this is all too familiar for Christians who operate outside of the Holy Spirit and the power of God in their life. They are satisfied with driving around in their 2,000 Prius when they have a 2,000 horsepower car in their garage. Paul's prayer is for the church, the people of God, to be filled with the fullness of God. You see, God doesn't desire for Christians, his church, the people of God, to sit on the sidelines. His desire is for his glory to be shown through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in and through his people. And when his people are completely yielded to him, he does so. Is God able to do what we ask? Is God able to do what we think? No. He's able to do more than that. That's what the text tells us. And not just a bit more, abundantly more. Does God not want to be glorified through his church? Does he not want his name proclaimed and his word going forth. You see, Paul has spent the last three chapters telling us of God's plan, that it was Christ, that he chose us, the church, 
before the foundation of the world. His plan was to bring about the promised Holy Spirit that the church would be built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that Christ would be the cornerstone and would become this place, the church, the people of God would become the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That God was revealing His plan. For God's church to reveal the manifold wisdom of God. And now he's telling the church through his prayer, power it up. Power it up. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And yet sometimes we as the church want to operate in the flesh We tote our year 2000 Toyota Prius out of the garage and say, that's what I'm going to drive today. Church, let us be the dwelling place for the Spirit of God to exert his power in our life. Look at verse 14 with me. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. This is our first point this morning. The church is made strong through the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Now again, I'm going to... I'm going to say this with a caveat. If you are wanting the Holy Spirit's power for your own selfish ambition and your own desires, guess what? You're wanting the wrong thing. The Holy Spirit comes in power and strengthens his people for God's glory. That's why. Paul has gone on a a verse, a 13 verse interlude beginning in, in verse 1 of chapter 3 in which he began. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he goes 13 verses on how he is a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. And now he picks up again and says, for this reason again. For what reason, Paul? We'll go back before chapter 3 to the end of chapter 2, verse 22. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is being built as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so this is the reason Paul is now going to pray. He's going to bow his knees and pray for the Spirit's work in and through his church for the glory of God. Man was created in the beginning for the glory of God. Remember in the garden, man was created in the image of God, a reflection of God. He was created to reflect his glory. And now God is saying, I'm coming to redeem that which is broken. I'm going to dwell in man through my spirit so now we as the church can reflect the glory of God in which we were designed and created to do. 
But we were marred by sin. But God is restoring the purpose of his creation through the gospel. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Again, again, he's referring back to what he's already said in chapter 3 about the mystery of the Jews and the Gentiles making up the church, the family of God, all nations coming together as the church. This is the mystery. And Paul refers to God as the Father in reference to the grace of God, the good loving father who wants his children to run to him. And Paul bows his knees in awe of this great God who has saved us by his grace even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Guess what? He made us alive. He humbles himself to get on his knees to pray for the church, to ask God, to do a work. When is the last time we as a church got on our knees and asked God to do a work in us, through us? Let me ask you this. What are you asking God for right now? Is your asking too small? Often we pray and, and often it's around the dinner table and it sounds something like this, bless this food, bless this house, let us have a good day, let us be safe as we travel. Bless this food, what does that even mean? What is your definition of a good day? I think when our prayer life It's too small. We are saying, let us just have safety. Keep us from anything hard. Let us coast through life, maybe hitting it big so we can get on a never-ending cruise ship. I don't know about you, but what about seeing the glory of God? Think about this. We read in the scripture, any work of God comes through troubled waters. Think about it. God shuts the door on the ark when the earth is covered by the flood and he rescues Noah and his family. God provides a ram caught in a thicket when Abraham's son is about to die. God shuts the mouth of lions when Daniel is in the lion's den because he's praying to the almighty God. The fiery furnace, David and Goliath, the Red Sea, Nehemiah and the wall. And then you see Jesus, the same thing is happening. Jesus healing the sick man who's lowered through the roof, the calming of the storm, the walking on the water, the raising the Lazarus from the dead. The power of God is seen in the lowest of times. And oftentimes we just pray for safety. We don't pray for the glory of God to be seen through the worst, through our weaknesses, through our suffering. Lord, just let us have a good day. 
Now, Lord, show us your glory through your mighty hand that you may help us to overcome whatever may lay in our path. James chapter 1, verse 2 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That you may be like Christ. You may have this joy because it's going to produce something in your life that's going to be complete and you're going to look like Christ. This is the goal. Not to have an easy life, but to glorify God. This is what Paul says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Remember, this is the man who is in chains writing this letter. Paul is not praying that God would give these riches to the church, but rather that the church would be strengthened by the riches they already have in Christ. J. Wilbur Chapman tells a story of a testimony of a certain man in one of his meetings. He's an evangelist, and he says, somebody told the story of himself. He says, I, I got off at Pennsylvania Depot with no money, and for a year I begged on the streets for a living. One day I touched a man on the shoulder, and he said, hey, mister, can you give me a dime? As soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see that it was my own father I said, Father, Father, do you know me? Throwing his arms around me with tears in his eyes, he said, Oh, my son, at last I found you. I found you. You want a dime? Everything I have is yours. Think of it. I was a beggar. I stood begging my own father for 10 cents when for 18 years he had been looking for me to give me all that I had, that he had. Think of it. If you believed upon Christ for salvation, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the riches of his glory. And the power of God is in you. Wake up, church. God is about to move in and through you. The strength provided by the Holy Spirit is according to his riches in glory. And this strengthening is incurring where? In your inner being. Not the outer being. But for spiritual strength, what is the inner being? 2 Corinthians 4.16 gives us this glimpse of Paul talking about the inner and the outer self. And he says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This renewal is growth. This renewal is having the mind of Christ, the desire to do the will of God. Our heart is aligning with Christ. It's changing our focus from us to him. Verse 17 goes on to explain this inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts 
through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word dwell here is katokeo. It's Greek. It's okay if you don't understand it. It's compound word. Kata means down. And okeo means to inhabit a house. And the context this dictates that this is not simply Christ being inside the house of our hearts, but being at home there, settling down as a family member. So the question is, is Christ comfortable in your heart? Christ walks into your heart, the house of your heart. Right? What does he see? Well, initially, right, when we first come to Christ, when we say we need Jesus to come and cleanse us of our sin, he walks into the house and it's it's full of trash and debris, like a hoarder filled to the ceiling and when we give the house of our heart to the Lord in salvation the spirit of God now comes and takes residence we are cleaned we are washed we are made new but guess what if we live in this flesh and we live for the desires of the flesh it's like throwing trash back into this house that Christ is made holy. We keep wanting to hang on to our old ways and yet the sanctification process of God is growing us to desire and to obey the word of God. So if you're living in the flesh, can Christ be made comfortable in your heart? You can't live in the power of God if your heart is not yielded to Christ. A result of living by the Spirit of God is faith. And that's what he says here. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What's the opposite of faith? Fear. Fear. If you go back to your prayer life, are you praying in faith or in fear? This is what Paul is praying for, strength through the Spirit of God so Christ dwells in you through faith. Let's look at verse 17 here. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is our second point this morning. The church knows the love of Christ, grows in that love to be filled with God. It's one thing to know something, 
with, with good old-fashioned Jeopardy head knowledge, right? You know, you've seen the show Jeopardy where these guys get up there and they know everything about everything and you just go, whoa, these guys know. I used to, I, I used to watch Jeopardy and think to myself, man, I wish I knew all these unimportant facts and, and, and me, 1988, circa 1988, could never know, right? And now I think to myself, past 1998 or 19, whatever, the internet came out. I think of myself, yeah, I, I'm, I know more than the Jeopardy guy with Google by my side, right? I mean, that's, that's how it goes. But head knowledge is not the same as inner being knowledge. It's heart knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. When the Spirit controls our heart and Christ dwells in our heart, he begins to display his love in and through us. When Christ has control of our heart, our desires, our our wishes, our, our innermost being, guess what flows out of that is love. So we are rooted and grounded in love. You want to know if Christ is comfortable? You want to know if Christ is at home and in the dwelling place of your heart? Check your love meter. What I mean by that is, are you patient? Are you kind? Do you envy? Do you boast? Are you arrogant? Are you rude? Do you insist on your own way? Are you irritable? Are you resentful? Do you rejoice at wrongdoing? Do you rejoice with the truth? Do you bear? Do you believe? Do you hope? Do you endure? If you say, man, I really need to check myself, guess what? Pretty sure you're not living in the power of the Spirit of God. He'll he'll say later in Ephesians, the spirit can be grieved. You don't lose the spirit, but it can be grieved. What's the opposite of love? Thought you might say hate, but it's sin. Why? Love God, love your neighbor. The summary of the commandments. Absence of love is sin. And when we are rooted and grounded in love, then we can know the love that God has for us. When we are immersed in the love of God, we know the gospel, we understand the word of God, we hear the promises of God in his word, and it leads us to comprehend the fullness of God's love for us. Are you resting in the love that God has for you today? Resting in God's love, as Paul means to understand it, is acknowledging its breadth, its length, its height, its depth. The breadth that it reaches all nations, Jews and Gentile, its length that he chose us before the foundation of the world, its height, as the psalmist says, for as high as the heavens above, so great is the measure of our Father's love and depths, and that God reaches down to rescue us from the depths of hell. As Micah 7.19 says, God cast our sin into the depths of the sea. This is not a fleeting love. Um, 
A fleeting love would be like a teenage love, a teenage boy and a teenage girl for about two weeks. They have, all they want to do is hang out with one another until one day you see the real person and realize that's, that person's got a lot of faults and I probably don't want to be with him. And so they're like, okay, maybe not. That's over. We'll see you later, right? That's a teenage fleeting love. But God's love is not like that. And the more that we understand this unconditional love of the Father that he has for us and the grace that he's shown us through the gospel of Christ, it gives us the ability to be powered by the Spirit. It's like the love of a father. When the father sees the faults of his children, he doesn't cast them aside, but he draws them closer to himself, loving them and helping them walk through those areas of their life in which they need help and guidance and instruction. That's what the good father does. This love found in the gospel controls us. And this control is where God fills us with his spirit. Verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. He will say later in the chapter 4 that we may be mature, lacking in nothing. The goal is to be like Christ. This filling is not like a filling of cup of coffee. This is not what the Spirit does. When we say filled by the Spirit, it's not like you're filling this, this Spirit and going down and up and, and, this, and it goes away or, or whatnot. No, that's not how the Spirit works. You can't just say, I want the Lord to fill me up and just pour more of yourself in me. You already have the Holy Spirit. You are a believer in Christ. He is permanent. He comes to take up residence in your life at salvation. But what we're talking about is the control of the Spirit. But for the Spirit to have control, he means he fills your heart to have, because you are yielded to God. If your heart is a house, as an illustration, you have open doors and fully yielded for God to go to work in those areas of your life. And yielding often leads to obedience to the word of God because the spirit is working in your heart and your mind. Faith leads to love. Love for Christ overflows to obedience, which brings about joy. I try to do this with my kids when we're talking about obedience and disobedience. And we try to tell our kids, obedience brings about joy. The result of obedience is joy. The result of disobedience is consequences, right? The result of obedience to the word of God and the spirit empowering us is joy. The result of disobedience, consequences of sin. God disciplines those that he loves. You see, this freedom to obey Christ now brings about a willingness for the spirit to lead and the flesh to die. Verse 20, now to him who is able 
to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is our third point this morning. God is able to do more than we can ask or imagine through his church for his glory. We've got, a, we've got a Christmas uh, background up just, just for your, your, your enjoyment today. <laughs> he is able to do more than we can ask or imagine for his glory. Church, is God able? Amen. He is able. He wants Christ to dwell in our hearts so that we may declare his glory, that the spirit of the living God would work in our hearts and our minds and that the church would reflect the glory of God. This is the power at work within God's people. I'm going to be the first to admit that I struggle. I struggle with fear, okay? Growing up... um, in high school, my voice would shake talking to a class members in my class. My voice would shake. I remember in uh, college giving a presentation in marketing class. Um, it was probably a three-minute uh, presentation. Now I speak for about 40, 45 minutes every, every week. But it was a three-minute presentation in a marketing class And I remember walking out of the room going, I don't even think I understood what I was saying myself because I couldn't catch my breath and my voice was shaking so bad. For the first year, every Sunday, for the first year I began preaching Every Sunday and many times thereafter, I would pray 2 Timothy 1.7 as I walked up the stairs to preach. I'm in year seven now of preaching. But I would pray, for God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And there was a reason why I preached that passage of scripture to you, Northwest Baptist, the first Sunday that I was here, because I cannot preach without the power of God. I can't. It is only through the Holy Spirit that allows me to speak. God has the power to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. He has the power to take away your addiction. He has the power to take away your selfishness, your pride. He has the power to take away your fear. The power to take away your inability to love your spouse or someone else. By the power of the Spirit at work within us, God is able to do more 
than we could ask or imagine. God saves us for his glory, and then he grows us for his glory. And then he puts us on display as people, as the church, that live out the gospel in our life so that his name would be made known. I want to leave you with one last thought, and it's this. And I've said this a couple times. I've alluded to it in the sermon this morning. But God oftentimes reveals himself through us and in us in our weaknesses. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, he says this. Paul says, my grace, God said, but he said to me, God saying to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then... I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. John 9.1 says this, And he passed by Jesus, and he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes we look at our life and we go, Why? Why am I in this situation? Why do I have this handicap? Why do I have this problem? What is God doing? And, and, and the disciples look at this man who's been born blind and they say, what did this man do to deserve this? And Jesus says that the works of God might be displayed in this man. Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. All the weaknesses that I have, all, all the issues, the insults, the hardships, the persecution, the calamities, I'm content with. Why? Because Christ said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God wants to do a work inside of you. He wants to do something great, not just good. He wants to show his glory through the Holy Spirit inside of you. And I know some of you guys are sitting in here and you're going, my, my life doesn't look like the gospel. My life doesn't look like I'm controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that's the beauty of God's grace. That's the beauty of the gospel that Christ saved sinners. 
Not that we have to be perfect to earn God's favor, but that we have to be fully surrendered and submitted and yielded to the Lord God Almighty. That may be you this morning. You may be sitting there going, I want to yield my life, all of it, to the Lord. I want to see God's glory displayed in my innermost being, in my innermost thoughts, in my innermost desires. Because I understand the love that he has for me. I understand the depth and the breadth and the width and the height of the love that God has for me. And there is nothing that I can do to escape that. Would you pray with me?